0: I am very, very excited to begin this study. We're going to be looking at the rapture of the church in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And this was a primary motivation, if not the primary motivation, for starting the study in this book in the first place. Because I feel we've been here a little more than two years now. We've been through Luke, we've been through Acts, we're going through Genesis... One of the major doctrines that I feel like we have not hit as hard as I would like to is the doctrine of last things, eschatology, specifically the rapture. We've touched on it, but I wanted to have the chance to go through that a little more systematically. But also, this has been a year of upheaval, you might say. You may have noticed. And just like in every other similar year in church history where things have gone crazy, The speculation concerning prophecy and the end times has gone equally crazy. And there has been an abundance of bad teaching related to biblical prophecy this year. It's always been there, but, you know, people start Googling, is this the end of the world? Well, it's going to give you something. And people who probably shouldn't have a voice end up with a voice. And I would rather us get right into the Word and look at what it says. We always want to ground our theology In sound Bible study, we want to open up the passage, tear it apart, look at what it says, what it means, and draw what might have to be, in some cases, careful conclusions. Say, we think this is what it means, we're pretty sure, but we're not going to die for it, necessarily. But what can happen is, you get one flimsy conclusion... And it becomes, if this is true, then this other flimsy thing, and now you've got this giant tower that looks really convincing, but at the bottom of it, you've got all these really dicey biblical conclusions and interpretations. So we want to address some of that, and next week we're going to look at that very specifically. But at the same time, there's another half to this, maybe most of you who are nodding just now. We don't want to be intimidated or embarrassed either when it comes to studying prophecy when it comes to studying what the Bible has to say about the rapture or the second coming or the tribulation if we believe this is what the Bible teaches then we believe it's what the Bible teaches we should be open about that you know sometimes you got to really dig in to find out what somebody actually believes about something you know it's like well what do you think about the rapture well what do you think about the rapture it's like what are you doing just answer the question and we should be firm about it too You know, we're going to go through all the aspects of this, and we're going to be very charitable to other points of view, but in the end, we're going to take a stand and say, this is what we think the Bible says. And in particular, our conclusions that we hold to here, which I'm not going to save anything to not spoil it for you, we believe in the premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture of the church, so there you go. That conclusion, more often than not, is not subject to loving and careful dispute you could say like biblical dispute this is what the Bible says it's really more often we get made fun of you know we get insulted and to be fair there are a lot of folks on our team that really make you groan and and put your face in your palm and say oh please don't say that oh please don't do that so for that reason, we ought to be extra careful to make sure that we are standing solidly on the Bible. And we can have certain conclusions and even what you might call speculations, but we've got to remember which box each thing goes in and be careful what we're going to be certain of and what we're going to, be, what we're going to call maybe an interesting discussion to have. So before we move on, I could these six points I'm going to lay out right here, I'm going to give them lightning fast. This could be its own message. But I want to lay out before we get into 1 Thessalonians 4, just some broad first principles that we hold to here. And some of them would be true for any church you're going to go to. Some of them would be specific to the way that we view things. But they're important, and I think this will help you understand how I'm going about this as we study it. So, first principles when it comes to studying the rapture and other end times prophecy and things like that. Number one. We not only believe that God knows what's going to happen in the end, but we believe that he revealed it to us so that we could know too. So if you want to put it real short, God wants us to know. It sounds very spiritual to say it doesn't matter about knowing what happens. God just wants us to know that he's got it under control. Well, he put it there for a reason. So we believe God wants us to know. That's important. Number two, we take the Bible literally. Literally. Which means we believe that all that imagery and all that symbolism that you find in Daniel and Revelation everywhere else, it might be symbolic, but it's symbolic of something real. That there is something real that it's describing. And that the Bible is not just giving us cute spiritual parables, but it's really revealing us what's going to happen. We take the Bible literally. Number three, this is important too. No one passage in the Bible gives us the whole picture. So we have to read it holistically. We have to take a comprehensive view of the Bible. You can't just read Revelation. You can't just read Daniel. You've also got to read the Olivet Discourse. You've also got to read Zechariah and Ezekiel and First and Second Thessalonians. You've got to bring all of it together to get a complete picture. So sometimes we can have like a canon within the canon that this passage trumps that passage. Well, it's not how it works. It all works together because it's all God's Word. Number four, our framework that we're working from, which I've laid out in in detail in some other places, so I'm going to assume some of these things, we identify ourselves as a dispensational church and a premillennial church. That means we believe that God's plan has unfolded in stages and that the millennium, the thousand-year reign described in Revelation 20, is a real millennium. When God said a thousand years, he meant a thousand years and that we have not gotten there yet. If those words don't mean a whole lot to you, don't worry about it. It's not going to affect too much what we describe today. Number five, this is an important one. We believe that these issues, in most cases, are not salvation issues. That There are godly brothers and sisters that have differences of opinion that we are all going to stand together with on that final day as brothers and sisters in Christ. So, There's a lot that we don't understand, so we want to be very careful how strongly we speak about other Christians who disagree with us on these things. Number six, I've already mentioned this some, but speculation beyond the boundaries of Scripture, especially as concerns names and dates, is dangerous. Not just a bad idea, it's dangerous it's disgraceful. So stay away from that kind of stuff. If you're, if you're here because you want me to give you a date for the rapture and tell you who the Antichrist is, you got the wrong church. And you probably know that by now if you've been here for any length of time. But it's important for us to know that. So those six things. God wants us to know. We take the Bible literally. We need a comprehensive view of Scripture. We are dispensational and premillennial. These are not salvation issues. And we're not here to speculate. Every now and then I might say, like, now this could be, but you've got to remember, those are could be's, not interpretations. Those are ideas, not conclusions. And, of course, we cannot possibly hope to address the rapture in one day. So, as we go through this passage in 1 Thessalonians, it's going to take us three weeks to cover this topic, and I still don't think that's going to be enough. When we get to 2 Thessalonians, we're going to look at it again. But every week we're not only going to examine the text in front of us, we're also going to bring in what I feel are some of the most compelling arguments for the pre-tribulational rapture. Why do we believe it this way? I'm going to bring in the reasons for that. So if you feel like there are some points that I'm skipping that are really effective, hang on, I'm going to get to those in the next two or three weeks. I couldn't cram them all into one week because then I couldn't do them all justice. So we're going to look at what the passage says. Today is more of a general overview. but We're also going to look at some important reasons for why we believe the way we do. I've got little off-ramps at various points in this message in case I start going over my time. So hopefully I'll be able to get to all the ones that I want to get to, but I think we'll be able to get to the most important things. So I hope this will not just be a doctrinal message, and this is doctrinal. You know, last week we had a very encouraging, very practical message. That was to help gear you up for three weeks of... School (laughs) of learning what the Bible says, but we need to know these things. Jesus wrote them there for a reason, did he not? And I hope it will also energize us to anticipate the return of Jesus Christ for his church. Amen? Okay, that's enough introduction. Let's get into it. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 14 to begin. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so we are continuing now the instructional portion of 1 Thessalonians, which began in chapter 4. The first three were very encouraging. It was about their relationship. Paul was commending them. And in chapter 4, he began to give them some concrete teaching. We looked at Sexual immorality, we looked at simple living, ethical instruction, now he's going to get into doctrinal instruction, which is going to continue through verse 11 of chapter 5. And Paul says he doesn't want them to be uninformed. That word in Greek is actually agnoein. It's similar to the word we have agnostic, right? To be without knowledge or to be ignorant, Or to not know. I don't want you to not know this. Paul used that phrase a lot, right? Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I would not have you be ignorant. And it's funny, because a lot of times the things he says he doesn't want us to be ignorant on is where there's an awful lot of ignorance going on in the church. So we've got to look at this. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. Interesting. That word for asleep comes from the Greek word koimao, which is where we would later get the word koimeteria or cemetery. The word cemetery or graveyard comes from a Greek word that means the place where people are sleeping. Isn't that interesting? I think that's kind of cool. Because it is the Christian custom, especially in the New Testament, to refer to dead Christians as those who are asleep. Jesus said it in John chapter 11. Lazarus is asleep, but I go to wake him up. And the disciples didn't quite get it. They like, say, oh, well, he'll be fine then. And Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, guys. But why do we refer to death as being asleep as Christians? Because if you're asleep, you're going to what? Wake up. You're going to rise again. You laid down, but you're going to rise again. We believe in the resurrection of the body. And Paul does not want them to be uninformed about that so that they will not grieve as others who have no hope. No other religion believes in resurrection. Reincarnation? Maybe. Yeah, you, your soul will come back, but you won't remember anything. You'll just kind of keep living lives that you'll never know about the old ones. Or heaven, yes, one day we're going to go to heaven and our spirits will be there and it'll be great. Or nirvana, our souls will be absorbed into the great consciousness of eternity. But only the Christian and, of course, Judaism, which is, comes from the same, same book we're reading, We have the hope of not only retaining our identity after death, but living again in a body in the world again. Now, why do we have that hope? Because Jesus rose from the dead. You see that? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, if he died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Romans 6.5 says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's not just a nice word about having a good life. It's a reality that because Jesus is risen, we're going to raise as well. One day we're going to live again and we're going to be alive with all of those who have died in Christ before us. Isn't that a hopeful thing? Doesn't that totally change the character of every Christian funeral you've been to? You grieve, yes, the grief is real, but you don't grieve without hope. You grieve with the hope of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the Thessalonians were afraid that if you weren't alive when Jesus returned, you missed it. Because you know, I mean, Roman and Greek theology, of course, was you die, you're done. You're not coming back. And maybe they still had some holdovers from that. Maybe they believed that they were going to miss out on all the glories of the millennium and the kingdom, and they'd only be raised after all that was over. Well, Paul writes this to reassure them. And he's been talking a lot about the coming of the Lord in this passage. I've tried to hang a flag on that every time we've seen it. Chapter 1, verse 10, he talked about the coming of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 13, he's saying, don't worry, guys. When the Lord returns, they're going to rise from the dead. It's going to be great. Don't worry about them. You're going to see them again. This is good for us to see because, remember, the Thessalonian church had not had a long period of instruction from Paul. That was one of the reasons he was so eager to get back. We've talked about that. Because he was run out of town very quickly. But it seems that in this short amount of time, Paul and Silas and Timothy had been able to instruct them not only in the coming resurrection and the second coming of Christ, but as we're going to see the rapture as well. So this is not academic level, way up at the top level theology. Paul thought this was important for new believers to understand. So it's something that we ought to understand, too. Because we read verse 13 and 14, it's like, okay, yes, the dead in Christ will rise when Jesus returns. But when we get to verse 15, Paul gives one of the most remarkable declarations in Scripture that will differentiate this passage about the resurrection from every other passage talking about the resurrection. That it goes beyond just hope of seeing your loved ones again to something even better than that. So let's look at this, verses 15 through 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So, again, it seems okay, seems pretty straightforward. The dead in Christ even seem to have an advantage. Hey, they're going to get raised before everybody else. But verse 17, this is something new. Let me read this verse again. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's arresting. That makes you sit up and say, what? It says that when Christ descends with a shout and with a trumpet, the dead will rise. But not only are the dead in Christ going to rise, the living will be caught up. They will be caught up with them and meet them in the clouds, it says, in the sky. That word there, you may know this if you've done this study before, is the Greek word harpazo, to be caught up. It means to seize or to snatch or to carry away. The Latin word of that Greek word was raptura which is, of course, where we get our English word rapture. So folks would say, well, the word rapture isn't in the Bible. Well, neither is the word trinity, but it's right there, you see, okay? Raptura, that's important, to rapture. We can speak of that word in a number of different things. To say, oh, I was just in rapture when I heard that symphony. It was so beautiful as I was carried away, right? It also can mean a physical being caught up or carried away, harpazo, raptura. In Acts 8.39, this word was used to describe when Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch and was caught up and was found in a different place. He got snatched. (laughs) The Lord snatched him up. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12.2, when he describes when he had a vision of heaven, he says that, I was caught up into the third heaven. Think of Enoch, who walked with the Lord, and then he was not. That's interesting, isn't it? He walked with the Lord and then wasn't, because the Lord took him. Think about Elijah, how Elisha watched the chariots of fire come from heaven and pick him up and carry him away. He didn't even die, he just got picked up and carried away. So we have examples of this in scripture, but Paul is saying one day that's going to happen to all living Christians when Jesus returns. And this is what everybody that takes their Bible literally can agree on. Living Christians someday will be translated bodily from this earth to the presence of Jesus in the sky, along with the resurrected Christians. So, when I use that word, rapture, that is one very loaded word that describes what we see here in verse 17. Being caught up away from the earth, into the clouds, summoned by the shout and the trumpet to be with the Lord. That's pretty cool. Now, we see there... In verse 15, he says, We declare this to you by a word from the Lord. This is a unique teaching in Scripture because we don't see this in the Old Testament. It's what Paul would call later a mystery, a word from the Lord. This is one of those prophetic revelations that Paul had, or maybe Silas had. Silas was a prophet too, and he's the one that co-wrote this book. It doesn't say, and it doesn't matter. He says, We've had a word from the Lord by our apostolic authority that... It's not just going to be resurrection on that day. There's going to be a rapture, too. It's a mystery. So to try and go back to the Old Testament and try and find this, Paul's like, you're not going to find it. This is New Testament revelation. 1 Corinthians 15. You might want to write this one in your margins or if you're taking notes. This is the other major rapture passage in Scripture. Look how Paul describes it. And hear how similar the language is. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Now we know to sleep means to what? To die. So we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, where the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So not only are we getting caught up, we're being changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So this is that second major rapture passage, where Paul confirms for us that this is a mystery. This is something that was unknown until the Lord revealed it to his apostles and New Testament prophets. And that passage also gives us some extra details here. It's going to be instantaneous. How fast? In the twinkling of an eye. Blink real quick. Boom. That fast. Enoch walked with the Lord and wasn't. One day we are going to not be. They were there and then they weren't. Instantaneously. It it confirms the same things we saw, that not everyone is going to die, but there's going to be a trumpet, and the dead will be raised too. He adds that our bodies will be changed, that it's not just going to be you caught up to heaven, but your body is going to go through what the New Testament calls glorification. You'll be glorified with the Lord in His presence. He talks about immortality there. You're going to leave that mortal body, but you're not going to leave it behind. The Lord's going to take it, and He's going to change it. That's what's so unique about the Christian hope. You're not going to leave this body behind. The Lord's like, no, bring it with you. We're going to give it an upgrade. I love both those passages because they're so joyful. They're so exuberant. Like, hey, guess what? We're not all going to die. And that's when we get to say, hey, death, where is your sting? I thought you could swallow up everybody. You're not getting me because I'm in Christ Jesus. Glorified in the twinkling of an eye. That's the rapture. That is a biblical thing that if you take your Bible literally and you're not insistent on spiritualizing everything away, we believe that this is going to happen. Now the question that we must ask is, when? You can imagine the Thessalonians asking Paul, wait a minute, when's that going to happen? Oh, tell me, tell me more, Paul, tell me more about that. We even read our own Bibles like, come on, Paul, you can give me more than that. You can give me more details than that, can't you? I believe we have every detail God thought we needed. But when does this take place? And to be clear, when I ask that question, when, I don't mean date, time, year. I mean, where in God's revealed prophetic plan can we expect this to happen? Because the Bible reveals in some detail what's going to happen in the future. And we have some big events. You know, it, sometimes it's hard to get the details right, but you can get the big blocks in place. We go, okay, this rapture is going to happen. Where does that fit? 1 Corinthians Paul says, well, it's going to happen at the last trumpet. And he goes, Okay, well, where's the last trumpet? That's not a very helpful thing, actually. There are so many trumpets in the Bible, and it's so difficult to know even when they relate to each other. So I think it's better to understand that, not so much as the last chronological trumpet ever blown, but as far as the church is concerned, it's our last trumpet. It's the homecoming trumpet, so to speak. I wouldn't read too much into that. In Thessalonians, he says, at the coming of the Lord. Again, maddeningly unhelpful. The coming of the Lord. So let's leave aside the rapture for the moment. We're wondering where this goes. Let's look at all these big blocks. Let's look at what we do know here. What does the prophetic picture say? Number one, right now we're living in what's called the church age. Okay, so that's that's your dispensationalism coming out if you're into that. We're in the church age now. We're doing the Lord's work, but it's not going to last forever. The Bible describes the next thing that we're looking for is something called the tribulation. It's called that because it's not going to be a very nice time. (laughs) It's going to be painful. It's seven years of God pouring out his judgment on the world, mostly by turning evil loose and just letting it go. We'll discuss that more in 2 Thessalonians. So after the church age comes seven years of tribulation. We know at the end of those seven years, Jesus will come, the second coming. And after that, he'll establish his thousand-year kingdom, the millennium. And after that, eternity. New heavens, new earth, and who knows what comes after that, but it's going to be great. Okay, so when we discuss the rapture, there are basically three positions worth your consideration about where it goes. There are some other obscure ones, not really going to get into those today. And they all pretty much relate to where you time that in relation to the tribulation. Pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. Most folks are either pre or post. There are a few mid-trib people, and the ones that I've met... Seem like they're just trying to make everybody happy. <laughs> like, no, can we can all get along just somewhere in the middle, you know? And then they end up by doing that, not making anybody happy. But so we're not going to discuss that very much. When we go through Revelation, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But before or after those seven years of tribulation. Now, I'm gonna be honest, the most I think natural reading, like if you're just going to read it, you say, oh, well, it goes with the second coming, because it says when Jesus Christ comes. That's pretty straightforward. But there are problems with that. And in fact, I think the main thing that the post-trib view has going for it is its simplicity. Well, it's, it's all one. It all happens at the same time. That's, that's pretty simple. And it can be very easy just to accept that and move on. But as I hope you'll see over these next three weeks, there are so many problems with that. Because once you accept that, now you've got all these other questions that you have to answer. And we're going to look at them one after another as we go through this. Let's look at what the text says. And this is something that pre-trib guys are often accused of. You know, (laughs) what do you often hear is, well, the pre-trib rapture was never come up with until a guy named Darby. And Darby, he he was one of the Plymouth brethren, and he invented pre-trib, and that's why you guys believe in that. You know, the only people who ever talk to me about John Darby are people who don't believe in the pre-trib rapture. They're like, well, you believe in – I'm like, Who? Well, you got it from the Schofield Reference Bible. I've never even seen a Schofield Reference Bible before, nor read one. I'm sure it's great. But I was not taught this from someone else's Bible. I was not given somebody else's book. I grew up with my dad and other great people opening up the Bible and showing you what the Bible says. So let's look at this. This isn't just us, the, the main accusation. It's so obvious. It's the same thing. Why are you trying to complicate it? Because we have good biblical reasons to do that. We know what the second coming will be like. We have a ton of details about the second coming. And not very many of them are very nice, to be honest with you. It's when Jesus Christ returns to save his people, and we go, oh, yes, the Lord's going to save his people. But it is going to be a violent retribution against the Lord's enemies. It says that the blood is going to flow as high as the horse's bridle on that day. And it says that Jesus will be, have a robe dipped in blood, and later on it says that he'll be covered with the winepress of God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus has been killing folks, and he's splattered with their blood. So that's the second coming, and it will be just, and it will be righteous, and we will glorify him for that. But it's important that we know that because It seems to contradict some things. Let's read Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 5. Here's a great Old Testament description of the second coming of Christ. It says, The Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. He's going to end Armageddon. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. From east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Okay, you also can read Revelation 19 if you like, about the sharp sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations. I love that passage. So according to the post-tribulational rapture view, when Jesus rides down to the Mount of Olives, he will summon the church to ride with him, which sometimes, and this is just a joke, I'm not trying to be mean, but it's, it's really, it really turns into more of a rapture bounce. You know, you're up and then you're down immediately. And this is what most folks believe. When Jesus comes, he'll summon all his people to him and they'll land together on the Mount of Olives. So I it describe in Acts chapter 1. And one of the Big, the the biggest argument that I hear now for this is, well, here in 1 Thessalonians 4, when it says that we will meet the Lord in the air, that word is anantesis. And that described like when a a crowd would come out of the city to welcome the emperor and bring him back in. So we're going to go out and bring the Lord back in. So we're not going anywhere. We're going to come back. To which I'd say, okay, well, I think we're coming back too. <laughs> I do think we're coming back. I do think we will go out and then come back. So I don't think that adds anything. And second of all, that's using an illustration and a technical use of a word that is not exactly what it says, so we want to be careful of that. That's post-trib. Now, that seems neat and clean, but I don't think it's the kind of language that it uses in the major rapture passage. And also, there is no undisputed second coming passage that includes the rapture. I think that's significant. There is no place that describes the second coming of Christ in judgment and in in wrath that includes the Lord rapturing his church. Here, what does Paul say? He says, we'll be in the clouds. We'll be in the air. We will always be with the Lord. That sounds less like Zechariah 14 or Revelation 19, and it sounds more like what Jesus promised at the Last Supper. This is the last major rapture passage. John 14, verses 2 through 3. This is what Jesus said. In my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus said, I'm going away. And we know, of course, He was going to heaven. He would say, after His resurrection, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God where he would prepare a place to take us i'm going to prepare a place and i'm going to come back and take you there jesus said that in john 14. again this is heavenly language this is in the clouds type language this is in the sky type language if the rapture happens when jesus returns to earth to stay and set up his kingdom when exactly are we taken to the place that he's prepared for us now you can spiritualize that if you want Say, well, no, no, he's just talking about how there's going to be a place in in God's heart for us, and we're going to be there forever. That's not what it says. It says, I'm going to a place to prepare a place, and then I'm going to come back and take you to that place. So this is significant. This is what Jesus said. He said, well, that's the new Jerusalem that's going to come in the, the new heavens and the new earth. But again, he didn't say, I'm going to bring it to you. He said, I'm going to get you and bring it there. Now when you take that and you tie it in with what Paul said that we're all going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye and be glorified with the Lord. And then in 1 Thessalonians where he says we're going to be in the clouds and in the air and the resurrection of the dead. This starts to seem not exactly what we're talking about in the second coming. And as I read, this is a mystery. This is not laid out very clearly anywhere. But that's what makes it so wonderful. I praise God for the mysteries in his word. So I think when you look at those three passages together, John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4 and, and chapter 5 as well, and 1 Corinthians 15, I think you are seeing something described. They're obviously talking about the same thing, and they're describing something different than the second coming of Christ. So, I believe that before the tribulation period begins... We're going to be caught up because we know that the second coming comes after the tribulation. I think it's pretty clear that these passages are not talking about the same thing. So we would put that before the tribulation. And there are other reasons for that, which we will get into over the course of three weeks. But let's just think about this for a minute. We will be reunited in the air with our brothers and sisters in Christ who have fallen asleep. In this twinkling of an eye, pow, you are here. Now you're in the air with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with the Lord Jesus, glorified, taken into the the home that he's prepared for you. He says this is when we will be with the Lord forever. You'll never be separated from Jesus Christ again. You're never going to have to say with the psalmist, my soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You're going to ever be with the Lord. I believe this is when we're going to experience the judgment seat of Christ 2 Corinthians 5.10, which talks about basically the award ceremony that the church is going to get for what they've done on the earth. I believe this is when we're going to be prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to look at this in the third week, but Revelation 19.7, just before Jesus returns, the last announcement before the second coming is, the bride has been made ready, and then Jesus returns. So I think that's what's going on. I think the rapture and the second coming are different events. So when will it happen? Now we're getting into dates and I can't give you any of that. Let's look again at the text here. What does he say? We, for this we declare to you, that we who are alive will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. And we who are alive will be caught up together with the Lord. And we will always be with the Lord. Same is true of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's using all this we language. Hey, someday we are going to be raised up. Someday we are going to be raptured. We're going to be taken to be with the Lord. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are writing as if they expect to be there. This is what we call the doctrine of imminence. And we're going to look at this in detail next week. But the New Testament writers speak as though they expected this return of the Lord at any minute. Especially in the book of James. He says the Lord is standing at the door. So be ready. First John says, live every day so that when he comes, you don't have to shrink in shame from him. Talk about the parable of the virgins with the oil and the lamp, always being ready because you don't know when he's coming. If we're not waiting for Jesus to return and rapture his church, who are we waiting for? Well, if you want to be honest, we're waiting for the Antichrist. Because the only sign that we have of the Lord's coming that he gives us really is, look for the abomination of desolation. But I'm not waiting for the Antichrist. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 1.10, the Lord said that we are to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Not who shelters us and carries us through, He delivers us out of the wrath to come. We'll talk about that more later. But to give a conclusion here, there is no prophetic word that must be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. We're not waiting for a temple to be built. We're not waiting for a treaty. We're not waiting for an antichrist. We believe that at any moment, in the twinkling of an eye, any time you, you blink, that could be the last blink when Jesus returns. And it might be today. That's pretty cool. So that's, that's sort of the outline of what we believe about the rapture. Just real basic. We believe that it is not the same thing as the second coming. We believe that it will happen to believers before the tribulation comes, and that it could happen at any moment. There's nothing else standing between us and that. So, 're uh, knowing that that's our position, we're going to come back, and I'm just, I want to support that. Every, every time we go through this, add a couple more pillars of why we believe that. Because I told you, if you try and add them together, the post-trib position of rapture and second coming is the same thing, you end up with way more doctrinal problems than the pre-trib one does. And I'm going to evaluate some of those. So this is a mysterious doctrine. You do need to sit up and pay attention. This is tough to get in, get through, I know. But it's very important, because remember what we said at the beginning, you've got to look at all the Bible. There's a lot of truth. There's a lot of objections to bring in here. For example, you might notice I did not refer to some of the most popular so-called rapture passages. And this is for good reason, as we're going to see now. We, I'm just going to say right ahead the time, you need to never be so attached to a certain memory verse to be have your mind changed on what it's actually talking about. Right? Because what about Matthew 24, 31, where it says, at the end, after the tribulation is over, it says, the Lord will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Ah, elect. That's the church, right? We're elect. Aren't we chosen? Aren't we elect? and, And this says it very clearly. It happens after the tribulation. That's true. But we've got to learn something here. That verse, along with the rest of what we call the Olivet Discourse, is not talking about the church. And I realize that may be news to some of you, but I want—I challenge you to go back and read it again. Matthew 23 and 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, and then mostly in chapter 21. The elect in that passage is the nation of Israel, God's elect or chosen people. You call them that all through the Old Testament. God's chosen people, chosen people, chosen people. You get to Matthew 24, chosen people. The church, no, no, no. Remember, what, what launched this teaching? You might not remember, so I'll remind you. They were walking through the city of Jerusalem. They see the temple, and the disciples are like, Jesus, isn't this an incredible temple? Look at that thing. It's going to stand for a thousand years. And Jesus goes, not one of those stones is going to be left standing on another one. And it says the disciples came to him privately, and they asked for three, three things. When is that going to happen? What are the signs of your coming? And very specifically, this is the coming to as they would say in Acts chapter 1, restore the kingdom to Israel. When are you coming as Messiah? When are you coming as King? And number three, the end of the world. The end of the year. So, when is all that going to happen? These are Israel centric questions asked of the Israel Messiah related to the Israelite temple. So, keeping that in mind as you read through it, he never talks about the church. He refers to Israel, he refers to Jerusalem, he refers to Gentiles, he refers to the elect but he's not talking about the church. I don't believe the rapture is in view in Matthew 24 at all. So the context would preclude that gathering of the elect from the four winds, even though it sounds very similar. It's not talking about the same thing. It's it's very different. And you say, well, what about the two women that were grinding at the millstone together? One was taken, the other wasn't. Or the two guys in the field? Believe me, you do not want to be the one taken on that day. You read that passage in Luke 17? He says, One will be taken out of the field, one will be taken out of the bed, one will be taken... And they say, where, Lord, where will they be taken? And he says, well, wherever you see the buzzards gathering. He says, wherever the vultures gather, that's where you know they are. They're not being taken away to heaven. They're being taken away for slaughter. This is why we... Just because the verse sounds like the rapture, and in a lot of ways describes what we should expect at the rapture, context matters. I don't want to be taken away to where the buzzards are. I'm to be taken away to where the angels are. <laughs> so in that whole passage, this is so key for us to know. We say, well, it says he'll gather his elect from the four winds. He's actually already used that phrase, and we're gonna get to it in a little bit, where Jesus had said, remember in the, in the ride into Jerusalem, he said, How often I wanted to what? Gather you together. Not rapture you together. I wanted to bring all of Israel together and finally establish my kingdom. And then in the next chapter. The disciples ask him, when's that going to happen? He says, I will finally gather all of my elect when I come for the second time. Now, this is where we start buttonheads heads with other theologies again. Say, so, wait a minute. Do you get to divide Israel and the church that way? I thought we were all one in Christ Jesus. Yes, we can divide them that way. We've examined this in great detail before. I encourage you to go back and, and read it. But this goes back to our literal interpretation. When the Bible says Israel, it means Israel. You read through the whole Old Testament, God is giving promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and David. He's making what he calls everlasting covenants with them. Did God then show up in the New Testament and say, just kidding, it's not talking about you guys. Real Israel is all these Gentiles over here. That is not what it says. You say, well, the church isn't really made up of very many Jews. Yeah, exactly. Read Romans 11. He says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Israel missed their job. God chose Abraham and thereby Israel to be his elect, to be his chosen people. I'm going to bless all the nations through you. But when Jesus came, what did the Jews do? They killed him. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected their mission. So God said, fine, I'm going to do it without you. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Jesus would say your house is left to you desolate until you finally acknowledge who your true king is. God said, I'm going to save the fullness of the Gentiles and then I'll come back for you. Then I'll come back and we'll, we'll sort this out here. Now, some folks are, are called replacement theologians. They say, no, the church has replaced Israel. It's not what it says. Romans 11.1 1 says, has God forsaken his people whom he foreknew? And Paul says, God forbid... Same same phrase he used when he said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. Has God abandoned the nation of Israel? Of course not. That final seven years is going to be God's way of getting Israel's attention. What would it take for all the Orthodox and Hasidic Jews in the world to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Messiah? Seven years of tribulation is what it would take. So we understand that. That the church is a unique part of salvation history. It's something that is different. This is something else Paul would call a mystery in another place. That God's doing this thing with the Gentiles, and he's not really using the Jews to do it. We didn't really anticipate this. So knowing that, that the church is something unique, and that we have this little interruption between God's work with Israel, the pre-trib rapture is almost expected there. That God is going to return to his chosen nation. Now that might make sense, but is it biblical? Are you ready for some meat and potatoes, biblically, you guys? Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. An angel came to Daniel to reveal how long until Israel would be restored. He said to Daniel, 70 weeks now, a week there is just the Hebrew word seven. So, seventy sevens, this would be seven weeks of years, all right? Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. "'Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem "'to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. "'Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. "'And after those sixty-two weeks, an anointed one,' where word is Messiah, "'shall be cut off and have nothing. "'And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary.'" Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of that week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Stay with me, okay? That prophecy is the key to so much, and it is, I believe, the most specific prophecy in the Bible. He says there will be 70 weeks. He says seven weeks plus 62 weeks until the anointed one, the Messiah, is cut off. So it began with the call to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, Cyrus gave that decree. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, Messiah is cut off. When did that happen? At the cross. When Messiah was cut off. Jesus was crucified. And what should have followed that was a seven-year Period. A one week. But what does he say would happen in in the intermediary? He says that the temple would be destroyed. That a desolator would come. That the, the nation and the city of Jerusalem would be ravaged while we wait for that one final week. So right now, we're somewhere in between week 69 and week 70. Now, that might have initially been intended to immediately come after Messiah being cut off. If the Jews had received their Messiah, but they didn't. They crucified their Messiah. So Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate in Matthew. He said, I will gather you, is that word again, when you are ready. This put a pause on that 70-week prophetic clock that continues to this day. The Lord said, 70 weeks. After week 69, they abandoned their Messiah. And God said, fine, I'm going over here to the Gentiles. Partial hardening, Romans 11 calls it. And we're waiting for that last week which is, of course, what we describe as the tribulation, right? So now the church, the Jews, and the Gentiles are experiencing the foretaste of the kingdom. It's that now and not yet thing, right? You have been filled with God's Holy Spirit. He gives you the foretaste of the kingdom. Jesus is king over your life, but he's not king over everywhere yet. We're waiting for the Lord to come back and finish up. What he's planned to do with Israel. So it's not just that we think it'd be a good idea for God to come back to his people. He's already announced we got seven more years of business to take care of, and we're waiting for that. So if in between week 69 and 70, you have this thing called the church, Jews and Gentiles, who are like people out of time, we belong to the kingdom, but the kingdom hasn't come. Is it so crazy to believe that the Lord would remove those people before he returns to his people, the nation of Israel? The book of Revelation will bear that out. You say, wait a minute, you're separating the timeline. How can you split hairs that way? How can you distinguish the rapture from the second coming? Well, we didn't really understand the first coming of Jesus, did we? They didn't quite understand that either. He's going to come and he's going to die on a cross. No, he won't. The Messiah will reign forever and ever. So God has showed us he is more than willing to put spaces in there that we don't quite understand. So I feel perfectly legitimate biblically in believing this. This is how we do eschatology, end times prophecy. We take the questions that are raised by the text and see if they match the things we already know to be true. Leading to what I believe is a strong case for the pre-trib rapture. Is the Lord going to set the church aside during those seven years and turn his attention to Israel? Of course not. God would never set his church aside. He promised to come and take us, to be with him. And he's going to establish his kingdom at the end of those seven years, and that's when it's all going to come together. We had time to get into one more of these. The Old Testament makes clear that the kingdom of Christ is the exaltation of Israel. You read all those passages in the Old Testament talking to you about the kingdom. And it's all Jerusalem, 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 the son of David, Israel, Gentiles bowing at our feet, worshiping our God, listening to us. Those are God's chosen people. He's got promises to keep. In Isaiah 65, this is what it describes the the kingdom of God, the millennial reign, the thousand years. That there will be people living and dying, but if you live to be a hundred years old and die, you'll be been like a, just a, a child who died. Somebody will die after a hundred years old and say, oh, they were taken so soon. It says that they're going to have children during this time. It says that they're going to be working the ground. They're going to be eating during this time. There are going to be animals alive during this time. God's going to tame the animals. This is that famous, the wolf laying down with the sheep passage, right? Now, this brings up an interesting point. If every believer in Jesus Christ, before, during the tribulation, all the nation of Israel, if they're all glorified at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming, and Jesus said that when we are glorified, we will be like the angels, not giving in marriage or having children, who's going to populate this kingdom? Who's going to be these people living and dying and having children and working and eating? Maybe you've never thought about it that way, but it's true. Who's going to inhabit God's millennial kingdom? There are going to be mortals alive. And this is another question the post-trib can't answer. If every person who's going to go into that kingdom has been changed and translated and glorified, well, now what? Now what do we do? Is God going to bring unbelievers into his kingdom? We know he's not. But if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, this is very simple. Matthew 25. You read about the judgment of the sheep and the goats. The Lord, after he comes... We love to apply this to kind of wherever we want, but this is very specific. The Lord says, when the Son of Man comes and all the holy angels with him, then he will divide the righteous and the unrighteous. And it's going to be the judgment of those who survive the tribulation. He says, "If unless those days were shortened, no one would, be, would survive, but he is going to shorten those days. And it says that the sheep will be the righteous and the goats will be the unrighteous. Now, how does the Lord judge them during that? Has this ever bothered you, that the Lord judges people based on their works during this judgment? Wait a minute. He says, you, this is when he says, I was in prison and you didn't visit me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And you're like, well, I thought we were saved by grace through faith. We are. This is something different. He says, not as much as you've done all these things to the least of my what? My brethren. He's talking about the Jews here. He's judging people at the end of the tribulation based on how they treated the Jews during the tribulation period. Now, Romans 11 tells us that all Israel will be saved. Zechariah says God's going to pour out a spirit of supplication and repentance on their heart. So all the Jews will have come to Christ. And then the Lord's going to evaluate the rest of the nations based on how did you treat my people. But we know from the book of Revelation that the people who take care of the Jews can only be Christians because everybody else is taking the mark of the beast and worshiping his image and persecuting them and executing them. So the only people that are going to make it into the uh, kingdom of God, the thousand-year reign, are the Jews who survived and the Gentile Christians. Now you say, well, are they going to be glorified? Not yet, they're not. They're going to be the ones that are going to be living and having children and eating and working and dying and all of that. These are tribulation saints. And you say, well, wait a minute, what about us? Oh, I can't wait till the third week when we get into this. It says in Revelation 19, or sorry, Revelation chapter 20, when Jesus sets up his millennial reign, he says that thrones were set up and those who were appointed to judge sat on them. That's you and me. How many times does the Bible say that we will be judges of the nations, judges even of angels? The kingdom is gonna be so wild, man. You're gonna have living people mortals. You're going to have the immortal glorified Christians, the church, living on the earth. Jesus Christ is going to be on the earth reigning from Jerusalem. We're going to have judgment over angels, which means there's going to be some kind of special interaction there. People are going to be living crazy long. The earth is going to be restored. The animals are going to be tamed. Satan's going to be bound up. That sounds like a pretty great deal to me. I'm not here to talk about the millennium, but I got carried away. Please excuse me. Now, if you hold to a post-trib rapture, you look at all that, and you go, this is splitting hairs. You're scoffing at the details. I had a, not a friend, but he was a, a classmate, we'll say, when I was in college. And he, uh, I remember he used to just, he, he never gave a single argument about why, but he would sit there and just laugh and scoff, and oh when anytime somebody talked about the prophetic plan. say, How can we possibly know that? And he loved to make fun of charts, especially. You're going to make a chart of the return of the Lord? Well, it helps me keep it organized, honestly. He was somebody who believed that the Lord revealed all this stuff, but you can't know it. It's too complicated. It's too crazy. I don't believe that. I believe it's difficult. I believe it stretches your brain. But I believe it's all been laid out to where we can understand it. How many times does it say in Revelation, let he who has an ear hear? Let him who has understanding understand It might seem simpler to reduce all these details to one single thing, but I think you're raising up too many questions. Read through Revelation. Read through Daniel. Read through Matthew again. The resurrection doesn't happen all at once. It happens in stages. They even give it numbers in the book of Revelation. First resurrection. Second resurrection. Well, there's only going to be one judgment. That's not what it says. In fact, Peter said judgment has to begin with what? The house of God. The judgment seat of Christ. The sheep and the goats judgment has a different standard than the great white throne judgment that comes later. And the rapture is the mystery in the middle of all this. So, do we believe that Jesus is going to come back and snatch us away? Yes. When do we believe it's going to happen? Before he comes to return to visit Israel for those last seven years. What we commonly call the tribulation period. And after that, Jesus is going to return and he's going to bring us with him. Let's read verse 18 back in 1 Thessalonians 4 to wrap this up. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Or comfort one another with these words. This is a very, very simple argument we're going to close with, but I think it's an important one. Comfort one another. The doctrine of the rapture should be a comfort and an encouragement. If we believe that Jesus is coming for his church, but he's not going to come until the seven years of the worst Terrible tribulation and affliction anybody's ever seen. How is that comforting? Don't worry. If you survive it, you get to bounce and come down with everybody else who died and missed it. Why would the rapture be an encouragement? Wouldn't you rather die and miss all that? No, I want to stay. Read Revelation again and then come back and tell me you want to live through that. Wouldn't you rather your brothers and sisters die and not have to go through the great hour of trial? Why are they grieving for their brothers and sisters? And I'm not just saying that. Revelation 14, 13, John says, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. In the middle of the tribulation, the Holy Spirit says, You're better off dead if you're a Christian. You're the happy one. You're the blessed one. What kind of expectation do you call that? Comfort one another, that you might live through a day when even the Holy Spirit says, yeah, the the dead are are better off right now. This is important. This is not just a a, a flippant thing. This might be a minor argument, but it matters. We're comforted by the fact that we're going to be reunited with our loved ones in heaven. And not only that, but we're going to be caught up to be with them and with the Lord forever. Now, we still face pain and persecution and tribulation today. This is not escapism. that's another thing that I always hear. If you believe in pre-trib, you're just afraid to suffer. Well, no. That's another one of those things. I've never heard that taught in a pre-trib church or read it in a pre-trib book. That's just been an accusation lobbed against us. We know we have to suffer. We're prepared to suffer. We send missionaries over to go and suffer and die for the Lord Jesus. But as we're going to talk about in detail in a few weeks, tribulation is not just suffering. That's the wrath of God. And all the wrath of God was placed on Jesus Christ. And I'm no longer appointed to wrath. And it is a comfort to us that we're going to see our loved ones again in God's holy house when Jesus comes to take us to that place he's been preparing for us. And that's where we're going to end it today. If we die, we will rise again with Christ. And if not, you're going to be caught up to meet one another in the clouds to be with Jesus forever. And the best part of this is that it might be today. There is no intervening sign. If you're a post-trib rapture person, you you can't believe that it could happen today. You've got all kinds of horrible things that have to happen first. I don't believe that. I believe I have hope and joy and exuberance because today could be the final day of struggle and strife before we're glorified in heaven and the Lord begins to dole out rewards for all the lives that we've lived. Think of all your dear ones who have died in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord, but they're unclothed. They're waiting to be clothed that glorified body. It's incomplete. It's not quite there. They're being comforted, but they're waiting for that day until the Lord resurrects their bodies, glorifies their bodies, and they are clothed anew. Paul said not to be unclothed, but to be greater clothed, upgrading the body you're in. So let me ask you today, do you have that hope? Do you have the same hope that I do right now? Is Jesus Christ coming back for you? Or have you never come to God and asked for his forgiveness? Jesus took all the penalty for sin upon himself. He took the wrath of God for you so that he could deliver you from the wrath that is to come. Both wrath on earth and wrath on hell later. And anyone who repents of their sins and turns to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God will indwell them and change you from the inside out. He'll write your name in his book of life and you can start fresh. Not just saying, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, but you start over God's way. And then you'll share the same hope we all have, the hope of the rapture of the church, when we'll be carried away like a bride waiting for her bridegroom to come and take us home. That's the hope that we share, the reunion in the sky, not just with our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, but with Jesus himself.